You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And you know that here we devote pretty much every January to abortion as much as we can. Now, one of the big things you'll hear about is the abortion pill. The only way that a woman can take a pill, say, the day of or the day after or such, and she can have an abortion done that way at home. But, you know, there are many times we do things, and as soon as we do them, we regret them. And that can be the case here. For instance, there was a story my wife read recently about a man who jumped off a Golden Gate Bridge, and he survived. Now he's a motivational speaker, but as soon as he jumped, he regretted. So what if you regretted taking the abortion pill? Is there anything you could do? Well... My guest says, yes, there is, and he should know because he's the main one behind it. It's the abortion peer reverser. His name is Dr. George Delgado. He is a medical director of APR and Culture of Life Services, COLFS, in San Diego County. He received his medical degree from the University of California, Davis, and completed his residency at Santa Monica Hospital, UCLA. He is board certified in family medicine, hospice, and palliative medicine, Healthcare Ethics, NAPRO Technology, and the Crichton Model for Natural Family Planning, NFP. He has been practicing family medicine since 1988. Dr. Delgado, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Well, how I got into the abortion pill reversal business? Sure. Well, I had been... uh, practicing medicine here in San Diego, including NAPRO technology, Mm -hmm. which is a new women's health science that allows us to identify and correct abnormalities in women's and men's fertility systems to allow the Mm. natural fertility systems to to act as they should and to, to allow natural conception. And part of that is treating women who have low progesterone levels and who might be at danger of miscarriage with progesterone. So I have had a long experience using progesterone in pregnancy. Mm. Prior to mifepristone, which is also known as the abortion pill and also known as RU486, prior to its approval in the year 2000, I had read about it and there was a lot of media buzz about it because um, this was touted in the mainstream media as a sort of holy grail. It was a way that would allow women to have their abortions at home without as much control by doctors and nurses and clinics. And so they saw this as a great way to grant women reproductive freedom by letting them, in a sense, perform their own abortions. Mm -hmm. And so I studied it and 
I learned that mifepristone works by blocking progesterone receptors. And so I was, I was well-versed on it and uh, I knew all about it. When in about the year 2009, I got a telephone call from a sidewalk counselor in Bakersfield, California named Terry Palmquist. Terry had a sort of a web ministry where she had carried a cell phone while she was praying outside of abortion centers. And she would receive phone calls from people who would call her after visiting her website. And that day she got a phone call from a woman who is in El Paso, Texas, and who had taken mifepristone, RU46, around, uh, she was around the seventh week of pregnancy. And she regretted her decision and wanted to know if she could reverse the effects of the mifepristone. So Terry called me, as she often did, for medical advice. And I told her, well, you know, Terry, I've never heard of anyone doing this. I've never heard of anyone reversing the effects of mifepristone. But let me give it some thought. And I thought back to how mifepristone worked by blocking progesterone receptors. I thought about how in pregnancy, when women had low progesterone levels, I gave them more progesterone. In In a way, this was an analogous situation that the progesterone effect was being blocked. So it was as if they had lower progesterone levels. So I reasoned that perhaps we could give this woman extra progesterone to outcompete the mifepristone at the receptor site and that we um, maybe could save the baby that way. So I told her I had a plan, but I needed a way to execute that plan because I wasn't in El Paso, Texas, I was in San Diego. So I found a doctor in El Paso, Texas, Dr. John Ellen Bellacura, who had experience with progesterone and had progesterone in her office. I called her and I asked her if she'd be willing to help, and she was. So I gave Dr. Bellacura my ideas for the protocol to use, and she went ahead and used that protocol and was able to save the life of that baby. Mm. So we had a very, very happy, grateful mother and, and a very healthy baby in utero who eventually was born and is now a very healthy little girl. Now, subsequent to that, I learned that Dr. Matthew Harrison, who is now our associate medical director of abortion pill reversal, that he had accomplished a similar reversal about two years earlier. And so although I hadn't heard about his case, he was actually the first case recorded in the the medical literature. There was nothing written in the medical literature uh, about that. And after that first case that that I helped, I started getting phone calls from people around the country who were interested in this, were wondering if uh, I could help them. And before I knew it, we had several cases uh, of women we had helped. At that point, I decided to write an article for a medical journal, and we published the case series in a peer-reviewed medical journal called the Annals of Pharmacotherapy. And Dr. Mary Davenport was my co-author. After that article, we started getting more interest, more phone calls. So I knew we had a couple of hurdles we needed to encounter. And one was that we needed to get the word out to more women so that they knew that they had this opportunity for reversal because if they waited too long, it would be too late and the unborn baby would be dead. And we also needed to have more doctors that we knew who were willing to help these women all over the country because we were getting calls from literally all over the country. And just about each and every call, we had to scramble around to find a doctor in that area to help the woman. So I wanted to have a network of doctors so that they would be ready to go and we would cut out the time, time intensive phone calls 
so that we could get the doctor and the patient in contact sooner. So at that point, we launched our website, abortionpillreversal.com, and in earnest created the organization that we call Abortion Pill Reversal. We have a seven-day-a-week hotline staffed by nurses and a physician assistant. And now we have more than 350 doctors in the network, close to 400 now, as well as close to 100 doctors throughout the world. So uh, we are global, but of course, mostly centered here in the United States. Since we've started, we've helped start an Australian abortion pill reversal, which they call AMR, abortion mifepristone reversal. They have their own world regional network there in, um, in the South Pacific. And a doctor in Russia has started uh, his own website and translated our material into Russian. So now we have abortion pill reversal in Russia. So we're very happy about the, the spread of that and um, we're hopeful that more and more people will know about our mission and know that women who change their mind do have a second chance at choice and that we are there to help them. Yeah, I, I do not appreciate how you explained it because <clears throat> I was talking to my wife about it before the show and it's like, what, so if a baby dies and it gets somehow brought back to life? I was like, no, I don't. I, that's not how it happens. We don't have Lazarus pills. Just yet, but we'll find out how it happens exactly. Right, and so what happens is progesterone, the hormone, is critical to a normal pregnancy. That's why it's called progesterone. It's actually an acronym, progestational. And progesterone does several things that are very important during pregnancy. The first thing it does is it, it fosters the connection between the placenta and the, and the lining of the uterus. So it keeps the placenta very well adhered to the uterus. That's critically important for the baby to get nutrients from the mother. The progesterone also leads to relaxation of the uterine muscle because we want the uterus to be nice and relaxed during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. The progesterone keeps the cervix, which is the opening of the uterus, closed very tightly like a biologic valve. Because during pregnancy, you don't want the outside world to communicate with the inside world. You want the uterus world to be totally separate. Mm -hmm. Progesterone does a few other interesting things. It prepares the cells in the breast to start making milk, but it actually, and then they're all ready to go, but it inhibits the milk production. So it's a very clever design that God has given us. So in the natural process, what happens at the end of pregnancy at nine months is that you see progesterone levels start to fall. And the falling levels then lead to a cascade of events, which is very important in what we call labor. What happens? The uterus starts to get twitchy and starts to contract. The cervix starts to open up because you need it open for delivery. And then when finally, when the baby is delivered, the placenta separates from the wall of the uterus. And then about 72 hours after delivery, what happens? The breasts start making milk. So all those are great things that happen at the end of the pregnancy. But if you block the progesterone effects during the pregnancy, like mifepristone does, what happens then? Well, the main thing that happens is the uterus and the placenta separate. The placenta starts to peel off of the lining of the uterus. And that, of course, is what leads to the death of the unborn child, the embryo or the fetus, because it's not getting the nutrition it needs from the mother's blood. So when that separation occurs, that's what ends the life of the unborn baby. 
That separation, fortunately, is not instantaneously. It takes many hours and maybe a couple of days to happen. So that's why we have that window of opportunity to give the progesterone in order to keep that placenta from separating. Well, Dr. Delgado, we know that the abortion side often advocates a woman's right to choose. So I can be sure they have welcomed your discovery with great joy and fanfare because this is all part of a woman's right to choose. And you are being decorated as a hero by the abortion movement. I mean, that, that's obviously right, isn't it? Well, you know, that's what I had hoped. <laughs> Fortunately, it hasn't turned out that way. And the, the reaction of the people who call themselves pro-choice has really been vehemently against us. They've attacked us on many, many fronts that I can describe if we have time. But it's led me to a conclusion, and that conclusion is that I really don't think they're pro-choice. They're really just pro-abortion. All they Mm -hmm. want is abortion. As long as the choice is for abortion, they're for it. If the choice is not for abortion, they're not for it. They definitely are not for a second chance at choice, a second choice. Mm -hmm. But it looks like from a lot of people you've interacted with, a lot of women that you've met are very grateful. And if you don't mind my asking also, are you meeting a lot of fathers who are very grateful, who don't want their, their the ladies in their lives to kill their children? Yes, we, we are. And, uh, you know, almost unanimously, the women who have tried to reverse the uh, medical abortion, even those who've had unsuccessful reversals, they've been extremely grateful that at least they had the chance to try to save their unborn babies. And the fathers involved and the the grandfathers and and other family members, they have also been very grateful. The the response has really been remarkable. And they they really feel that this gives them a second chance, not just for the life of their unborn baby, but just a second chance of of leading their lives on a good path and and doing what's right for their families and and just for themselves personally. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, it, it, it is this a case, like I said, that it does parallel very well with suicide attempts and such that many times as soon as a woman takes a pill, she can immediately regret it. And did, have you encountered a lot of people who they weren't able to reverse the pill as well and they regretted it? Yes, it, it, it really, and you know, the suicide and the abortion are very analogous situations because in both situations, there's a person in crisis who feels that uh, he or she is in a corner and has no other way out. And for the person committing suicide, that only way out is taking his or her own life. For the person with the crisis pregnancy, that solution is taking the life of the unborn child. Mm-hmm. And so I see them as very analogous. And just like with suicide, there's often immediate regret in the attempted suicide. The people who've taken the mifepristone express to us often that they have immediate regret, immediate second guessing of what they did, and even a lot of ambivalence before they took the, the mifepristone. So the difference between a surgical abortion, of course, and the medical abortion is that in a surgical abortion, once the instrument has entered the uterus, then there's nothing that can be done. Mm-hmm. With the mifepristone, the medical abortion, we do have a window of opportunity. So women are very grateful to have that window of opportunity when they, 
when they do choose to attempt reversal. And what has been the success rate of this? With our best protocols, the success rates have been between 60 and 70 percent. 60 and 70? 60 to 70. Okay. That, that's a very good success rate and such. Are, are there any side effects for women involved? There are some minor side effects with progesterone. They include nausea, sleepiness, heartburn, and if they have varicose veins, there can be worsening of the varicose veins and some tenderness in the legs. Mm. Progesterone has been studied and used in pregnancy for about 50 years and has been found to be very safe in pregnancy. It's not associated with any birth defects. And interestingly, mifepristone, the abortion pill, is not associated with birth defects. And the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which is not in support of abortion pill reversal, by the way, has come out in April of 2014 with a practice bulletin where they stated that mifepristone RU46 is not associated with birth defects. Mm-hmm. Now, I must say that the second drug in the cocktail, the misoprostol, which I haven't discussed yet, uh, that second drug, which they generally take 24 to 48 hours after the first drug, after the mifepristone, that one is associated with birth defects. So women who take misoprostol, the second drug, if their babies survive, they have an increased risk of, of birth defects. And then probably the risk of birth defects in the normal population is about 3%. And a baby exposed to misoprostol, that second drug, the risk of birth defects, the chance is going to be something like 6 to 15%. Mm-hmm. So it's real, but not huge. But the, all the women that we have studied in our studies have been women who've only taken the first drug, the mifepristone, which is not associated with birth defects. Mm-hmm. And if these birth effect defects did come about, what, can, what defects are we talking about? So the birth defects with the second drug, with the misoprostol, the birth defects are the arms and legs can be shortened and there can be some deformities of the face and the nerves that innervate the face. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, around for what we do in deeper waters is uh, my wife and I both have Asperger's, so we're very much interested in things relating to birth defects, as we're called, and such. about. I personally hate the term, but aware, but it's what we're stuck with. So, mm-hmm. but overall, I suspect many women would be happy to have a baby with that kind of birth defect, just provided they have the baby. Right, exactly. And so that's, that's again, that's the perspective that sometimes um, people lack when they're in these situations. Before we get to our next question, I'd like to remind everyone you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. We got Dr. George Delgado, who's behind the abortion reversal pill here, talking with him about it. But if you're listening next week, we're going to be looking a little bit more at pro life issue going a bit further. I'm going to have Scott Henderson as my guest, talking about his book, 
death and donation, where he looks at the organ donation idea, right? He supports it. He does say there are some problems we have with this. And if we're going to be consistently pro-life, we need to deal with those. So Scott Henderson is going to be my guest next week. Now, Dr. Delgado, tell us about some of the reaction you have received from the abortion lobby. Okay, sure. So there have been several critical statements uh, through the press Mm -hmm. and uh, official proclamations from American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and also actually a article in a medical journal called Contraception that is specifically written to attack our efforts. So they've it's really been uh, Goliath coming after David in, in many sense. I think they feel threatened. I think they feel threatened because if anybody dares to question the pro-choice wisdom that abortion is a good thing, and and there is an implicit questioning of that principle if you do acknowledge that women have second choices and want to change their mind, well, then they want to squish that and squash it and make sure that that voice is not heard. So I think mm-hmm. that's why. And some of the things that they've said have included that, well, first of all, your baby's sure to have birth defects. And we've, I've already stated the medical literature shows that babies exposed to, um, to mifepristone only have no increased risk of birth defects. And in fact, the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecology themselves have said that. Mm-hmm. Second thing they've said is, uh, second lie is that it's too risky to do this. And we've demonstrated now with our case series of hundreds of women that it's safe, that we haven't had any increased uh, complications or any problems. The third charge that they've leveled against us is that what we're doing is actually ineffective and that the woman simply needs to, if she changes her mind, she simply needs to do nothing and wait and she'll have the same success rate as us. And in, in making that argument, They've actually taken some of the research data and they've either misinterpreted it, misrepresented it, or they've actually just plain out lied. And because of that, Dr. Mary Davenport, my colleague, published an article uh, with myself and others as co-authors that was published in a peer-reviewed journal called Issues in Law and Medicine just last year, looking at the old mifepristone studies. Because when they first studied mifepristone RU46, they just gave that single drug. What they found out was that some of the time, although the unborn baby would die, the uterus would not completely empty. And so because of that is why they introduced the second drug that I discussed a few minutes ago, misoprostol. The misoprostol is very good at causing the uterus to contract and to squeeze everything out. And, but... The women we're treating have only taken the first drug. So we were interested in those very early studies when they only got that first drug, mifepristone. Mm -hmm. And when you look at that, you see that the survival rate of the unborn babies is 7 to 23%. And so we're using, as our fact, uh, 23%. We're going to err on the high side. And also because that 23% came from a study that had the dosage closest to what we use now. Use the same dosage that's used now for mifepristone. So we'll say that 23% of the time, if a mother takes mifepristone, her baby will not be killed. 
Mm-hmm. So that's not a very good survival rate, is it? 20, it's better than nothing, of course, but 23% is not, not that great. Mm-hmm. Like I told you with our best protocols, our survival rate, our success rate of reversal is 60 to 70%, so much better than that. But what these uh, opponents are doing is they're looking at something else called the incomplete abortion rate. And so as opposed to the survival rate, what an incomplete abortion is, is that the uterus has not completely emptied. It does not imply that the unborn baby is still alive. It just means that there are still contents in the uterus. Mm-hmm. And the incomplete abortion rate is anywhere from 20 to 40%. So they're taking that 40% high number, they stretched it to 50%. And they're saying that if nothing at all is done, the baby will survive 50% of the time. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. It's, it's, if nothing is done at all, 40% of the time you'll have contents in the uterus, but only 23% of the time will those contents be a live unborn baby. So that's been the, the most confusing thing they've tried to do, to take numbers and statistics and twist them and stretch them and misinterpret them. Mm-hmm. But I feel that we are answering those charges very clearly and I feel that uh, with that second paper we published, it, um, it has really directly addressed that. The other thing we, uh, we can look at in, in this quote charge of, the, of this being ineffective, and they've also leveled a charge of, of this being quote junk science. And I, and I respond to that by saying it's not junk science, it's just new science. And anytime there's something new, you're not going to have hundreds of medical articles in the literature. You're going to start with one and then two. And right now we're on our third ready to be submitted so we're working our way there. But then really point to three pillars of evidence that this is an effective thing to do. Number one is that it makes biologic sense. Because in any biological system, when you have two hormones or two molecules that compete for the same receptor, if you raise the concentration of one of them, that one will be victorious. It's just like if you have a key that goes into a lock and the lock is turned by the key and the door opens. That door opening is analogous to the hormone effect. Let's say the good things progesterone does in the body. Well, all of us have had the experience of putting the wrong key into a lock. And even when the key actually fit in the lock, the key did not turn the lock and the door did not open. That's what we call the false key. That's the hormone blocker, mifepristone. But fortunately, those keys go in and out. It's a dynamic state. And so if we put more of the good keys, the true keys in front of that lock, there's a better chance that the good key will get in there and the door will open. Mm -hmm. It's a competition. And so in any biological system, that's true. And it it has to be true with this one too, because that's the way biology works. Mm -hmm. The second pillar of evidence is that there have been studies done in Japan on rats where they gave one group of pregnant rats progesterone and mifepristone, and they gave a second group of pregnant rats mifepristone only. The group that got mifepristone only aborted all of their pups, and they had characteristic changes when they looked at their tissues under the microscope. The group that got mifepristone with the progesterone did not abort any of the pups, and when they looked under the microscope, there were none of the changes caused by the mifepristone. So that proved that in a living animal, progesterone can reverse the effects of and block the effects of mifepristone. Mm-hmm. And then the third pillar of evidence is our growing case series. Now hundreds of patients. We've had over 350 birds of successful reversals now that we've documented. 
and about another hundred or so are pregnant after successful reversal. Mm-hmm. So we feel that um, we are demonstrating that using progesterone to reverse the effects of mifepristone is both effective and it's safe. You know, I could have sworn that back in the day, Gloria Steinem, the great feminist of her time, had this saying that if we do anything and it can save one child's life, it's worth it. Maybe they didn't really mean that. Yeah, I think sometimes they selectively remember what their the people in their camp write or say. Mm-hmm. It's definitely true. I was talking last week on show of Clinton Wilcox, and one of the things that came up, for instance, about how our cultural views of abortion is that back in 2016, during the third presidential debate, all the headlines were the day after how Trump had said, with the election results, if he lost, he said, I will wait and let you know. And to me, that was a very understandable thing for him to say, but the media was in our Twitter because of it, literally on Twitter, no doubt. But in that very same debate that Hillary Clinton had said live on stage, she described a so-called partial birth abortion and defended it live on stage. No one said anything about that, really. And that I found very concerning. Yes, I think, you know, the, the media certainly have a bias in our country. And it's a, a bias against life. And oftentimes it's a bias against individual liberty. It's a bias against uh, Christianity and Judaism. Mm-hmm. And it, um, it, I think it's definitely a very clear and present. Mm-hmm. It seems to me also, in fact, many times that in the political landscape, for those who defend it, abortion and especially Planned Parenthood are in essence a sacred cow, and that these have to be defended at all cost whatsoever. Do you notice that as well? Yes, I have noticed it as well. And I think that um, if you look back at the history of some of these politicians, some of the ones who are a little bit older, many of them were actually pro-life, but out of political expediency became pro-abortion. So mm-hmm. uh, those include um, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, former President Bill Clinton, all of the Kennedy political clan, um, Al Gore. Yep. All of these people were pro-life until they saw that uh, in order to further their political careers, uh, they should be pro-abortion. It's, it's very sad. And and I think the what I call the medical abortion complex has become quite a powerful force led by Planned Parenthood, of course, and they exert an extraordinary um, amount of political pressure on uh, politicians, particularly um, more liberal politicians, Mm -hmm. and they have a great deal of control over that part of the political spectrum. And I'm also thinking when you're talking about all these politicians, of uh, Tim Kaine, for instance, the vice presidential choice under Hillary, who I think it said that... uh, he, as a Catholic, is personally opposed to abortion, but he doesn't want his faith to dictate his politics, so he's going to defend a, a woman's right to choose. Yeah, and that, that to me is very sad, especially myself personally as a Catholic, mm-hmm. that um, if, if a person says he doesn't want his faith 
to influence his political life, then what he's saying is that he's putting his political life above his faith, in essence, uh, creating a false god. And that to me is is very sad and uh, um, pray for him, mm-hmm. he'll find that path. Yeah, I, I agree. Now, when you're dealing with people who are of this persuasion, and some of them will also say that, uh, for instance, so many births end up in miscarriages and where geez, God has to be the one behind that anyway. I mean, what do you think of that as a Catholic? And what do you, and, and how, do you think the miscarriage rate is as high as we think it is and what contributes to it and that kind of thing? Well, you know, that's a kind of a multifaceted uh, question. First of all, I, I do think that the miscarriage rate is probably, um, it's probably uh, exaggerated, number one. Number two, with some of these early so-called miscarriages, we really don't know what exactly has happened from on a biological standpoint if really a new human person was created. Um, so so there's, there's really kind of a... Um, not sure what's really happening there with these very early, like these so-called blighted ovums. If that, you know, certainly they're, you know, biochemically you measure HCG hormone, but was that really a human person that was created or or not? Because we do know that there are such things as molar pregnancies that, that go on later into pregnancy, and we're clear that these are not new human persons. The, the egg and the sperm have united, but and, and tissue started to grow, but they're not really human persons. So there's that aspect of it. But then there's the other thing is it really doesn't matter philosophically whether whether or not there's a high miscarriage rate or not because God does not will miscarriages. God allows miscarriages to occur just like he allows other tragedy and things to occur. So I, I use the analogy of let's say you have a very impoverished country that has a famine and we've seen this in the history of the world, um, you know, throughout the ages. And let's say the infant and the child mortality rate is 25%. Okay, so very high. It's as high as what maybe some people say that the miscarriage rate is. So just because the infants and the children are dying at a 25% rate, it doesn't mean that God is causing that. He's allowing it for for whatever reason and, and, you know, for reasons that God allows uh, evil and hardship to occur in our world. But it doesn't mean that he wills it, number one. Number two, the fact that such a high percentage of these infants and children are dying does not in any way diminish their intrinsic value as human individual persons. So it's really a false argument to say that because there's there may be a certain percentage of unborn babies miscarry, that therefore their lives are no longer intrinsically valuable. It's just, that's a false argument. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm curious about this thing you said, a molar pregnancy and such. I actually haven't heard that term before. Can you tell us what happens in a molar pregnancy? Sure. In, in a molar pregnancy, a sperm and egg unite, and but from the start, it's not the creation of a, of a human embryo it's separation of the chromosomes is abnormal and you get a growth of tissue that has abnormal numbers of chromosomes 
that doesn't uh, differentiate normally the way a growing uh, embryo and then fetus would. And it can cause the woman to be sick. And then sometimes there can be malignant transformation where the tissue can become cancerous and actually invade the uterus and into the mother's body and actually metastasize and cause the woman's death. So molar pregnancy is a serious medical condition. And this is uh, one of the times where everybody agrees that emptying the uterus um, surgically is, is an important treatment. And it is not at all regarded, that treatment is not regarded in an abortion because, again, it's not a, an individual human person. It's a development that has gone greatly wrong that never produced a person that has caused tissue to grow that is not a person. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, when we're, we're talking about this kind of thing also, I mean, it seems like that could undermine your arguments, though, in some way, because it seems like you're talking about a pregnancy that's not a human person. And someone could say, well, maybe what we're aborting also, likewise, isn't a human person. Right. And that's an argument that's been made. However, if you look at the typical pregnancy, then you see that the individual individual being that is created is separate from the um, from the mother and is a self-actuating, self-affecting, self-driven being mm-hmm. that conducts its own development and only is dependent on the proper nutrition and the proper environment in order to mature along the well-known, well-described, familiar developmental continuum that we call a human being, a human person. And so that's um, much different than uh, the other situations we've talked about. And this is these are the, the majority of the cases, the vast majority. And so you can never make policies or proclamations that cover the majority based on a few anomalies, based on diseases. For example, another analogy is we describe human people, human persons as belonging to the species Homo sapiens sapiens, and we're characterized by being rational individuals who are, we're, we have self-awareness and we are aware of our self-awareness and we can seek abstract things, we can seek God. That's what characterizes us as human beings. It separates us from the lower animals. However, all of us can come up with examples of instances where people are not rational, are not self-aware, maybe have profound mental retardation, or maybe do something that just about all of us do every day of our lives, and that is we go to sleep. We go to sleep. We're no longer self-aware and aware of our awareness. And so would that mean that human beings are no longer human beings or that those individuals are not human beings? No, it would not. Those are just exceptions. And we have to look at what characterizes the species and so that's why that would be a false argument, saying that uh, these unborn babies are not human persons, mm-hmm. just because there are some instances uh, where development goes awry.
Well, I'd like to remind everyone at this point and you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My name is Nick Peters. I'm your host. And everything we do around here is done through the support of listeners like you. And we could really use your support. So I encourage you to please go to my website at deeperwatersapologetics.com and click on the support link, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And you'll get to go to... uh, to the side of Risen Jesus, that's my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you make a donation there. And you then get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, or Mike or Debbie and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We'll make sure we get that donation and it will be tax deductible. And also... You can go on Amazon, buy some ebooks I've either written or co-written, such as A Creed for the Ages, one I've written, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, or ones I've co-written, such as Defining Inerrancy, or God and Natural Disasters, or Christian Answers of Risk Generation's Questions, or Groundless. And another way you can support us is, um, guys, I'm uh, not sure how many of you know this, but Valentine's Day is coming up. And, you know, Valentine's Day is not an area you want to screw up in the romance department. And one of the best things to do in the romance department is jewelry. You're not those ladies love it. And if you're thinking of popping the question on Valentine's Day, well, you're going to need some good jewelry for that. Why not buy it through Deeper Waters? So get in touch with me, I'll tell you how, but it's done through Premier Jewelry. And whatever you buy, 25% of it goes to Deeper Waters. So, gentlemen, like I always advise you on the show, you can buy something special about lady in your life to make up that big screw-up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy something about lady in your life to make up that big screw-up that I know you're going to make with her in the future. Now, uh, Dr. Delgado, do uh, you have uh, any organization you'd like to see people donate to? Sure, we appreciate donations to abortion pill reversal, especially because we are planning a new research study. We need funds for that. This is to firmly solidify our research protocol so that we can deliver the very best treatment to women um, that is most convenient for them. So people can um, visit our website, abortionpillreversal.com. They can also send us an email at apreversal at gmail.com. And our parent organization is Culture of Life Family Services, and that website is Colf's, C-O-L-F, as in Frank, S as in super, dot org. So abortionpillreversal.com and colf's.org. Mm-hmm. So tell us about this research that you're going to be doing and such. And what do you hope to have be the end result of this research? Well, at the end of this research, we want there to be irrefutable scientific evidence that Abortion pill reversal is safe and effective, and we wish to look at our best protocols and pit them head-to-head so that we can know which are truly the best protocols, which are the shortest courses of treatment. We really want to fine-tune it so that we can make it the most convenient, acceptable treatment for women who change their mind and decide to try to reverse the effects of mifepristone. Mm-hmm. Now, the abortion lobby hasn't been very happy about this whole thing. Have you met anyone in the scientific or medical community, though, who is intrigued by your research and is supportive of it and wants to do more with it? 
Yes, we've had um, many people in the scientific and medical community who are very interested and are supportive. For example, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs has been very supportive and has backed us. The Catholic Medical Association has been very supportive and various other pro-life physicians across the country have been very supportive and are very excited about what we're doing and uh, are waiting for our latest paper to come out. Mm-hmm. Now, if this does get clear and such, how do people get a pair? Is it something that they have to get the same way if they get the RU46 pair or what? How do they get the progesterone? Yes. Yeah. Well, they would get it, you know, ideally in the future, I would hope that they could get it from any physician or any emergency department. Mm-hmm. But right now, the best thing uh, for them to do if, if they've taken mifepristone and changed their mind is to go to our website, abortionpillreversal.com. They can get some information there. And if they want to proceed, then they call our hotline number. And then from there, they talk to one of our counselors who make sure that they understand what, uh, what reversal is all about. And once they've explained the process to them, and they decide they want to continue then they connect that woman with a doctor in his or her area or a pregnancy medical clinic in his or her, in her area. And then the woman can then uh, start on the progesterone, generally either oral pills that they take or injections. What's the time frame that the woman has to do this in? Yeah, we've had success up to 72 hours after they've taken the mifepristone. Mm-hmm. And so if a woman calls and such, you're able to get this to them, I hope, I'm guessing, pretty quickly and such, because they could be calling from anywhere in the world, and you just ship them out this to them immediately, or what exactly? Yeah, what we do is once, once we have talked to them and, and explained everything and they want to proceed, then right away we get going and find a doctor or clinic in their area, and then make that connection, and then they get moving on it right away. Mm-hmm. Now, is this at any cost to them as well? Well, it all depends. There can be cost, and some of the women have insurance plans that will cover this. Sometimes um, Medicaid will cover it. If the women do not have um, any kind of insurance plan, then some of them pay for it themselves. When they can't afford it, then what we've seen is that local benefactors in their in their local areas, pro-life benefactors, have stepped forward to cover the cost of their treatment. And when that has um, not been available, then we have, as a national organization, have offered support and have um, reimbursed them or paid for their medication. What I do know is that I have never heard of a case yet where a woman has not been able to undergo reversal because there was no financial support for her. Mm-hmm. You know, some of I was just talking about during the whole thing about getting uh, getting donations to deeper waters and such was about the whole romance thing. And that got me thinking that I think one of the reasons we debate abortion so much, I've said it several times, like get your input on it. I don't think abortion would be an issue to Americans if it wasn't connected to the sex. If it wasn't connected to sex? Yep. Because I think abortion is seen as an issue because it interferes with sex, the great God of America. 
And if you're pregnant, you can't do that. So we have to do something about that. Yeah, I think I think it's a the whole issue of instead of seeing ourselves as stewards of our bodies and of our children, we've taken the role of masters of our bodies and our children, no longer allowing God to be the master. And I think when you do that, it um, whether it's sex or anything else, you don't follow the natural plan and you start to make decisions that are harmful both to yourself and to those who depend upon you, especially the most vulnerable, the least of our uh, brothers and sisters, the unborn. Now, what would you say that we should do when we meet someone and who has taken the, the, uh, the abortion pill? How, how should people respond to that? Well, I think, you know, assuming that, that they've taken it and it's, you know, within the first uh, couple of days, you can um, say, well, how are you doing? Um, do you regret what you've done? Because I don't know if you know, but there is a way to reverse this for, for women who do change their minds. So if you have have second thoughts, you can call this hotline and, and they can help you with that. I think it's also important to talk about it before those situations come up because there are so many people, including people in the pro-life movement who don't know about, first of all, they don't know about what the abortion pill it is. They often get it confused with the morning after pill. Yeah. And they don't know that 35 to 45% of all abortions in the country are accomplished using mifepristone, a growing percentage. First of all, they don't know about that. And secondly, they don't know that it is reversible. Mm -hmm. So we need to have these advocates aware of all this so that when they do encounter those people, they can offer that help. And also for women who are in sort of high-risk situations, you know, are young people who are who are sexually active, uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. before they're married. Yes. They're really high-risk people. And it's good for them to know about it ahead of time, too, because if, unfortunately, they do get pregnant out of wedlock, and, unfortunately, they do take mifepristone, if they finally do come to their senses and, and realize that what they've done is wrong and, and, and harmful to themselves and their unborn child, well, then they'll know that they can try to reverse it. So I think... Spreading the word to all of these people on all levels is, is really important. The more awareness we have, the better off all of us will be. You know, a woman wanting to get this reversed, I suspect, is already punishing herself mentally, emotionally, thoroughly for what's happened. She could be scared to call into your hotline and such because she might be thinking she could get some of that there. What will she get instead? Well, when she calls our hotline, and even if if you look at our website, everything is written factually, but um, compassionately. And so she'll get a very compassionate person on the other line uh, of that phone call, someone who deeply cares about her, Mm -hmm. someone who wants what's best for her. And there'll be no judgment at all. We don't force anybody. We don't force anybody to call us. They call us of their own accord. Once they call us, we simply offer a sympathetic ear, compassion, facts, and then we give them an option. So we don't twist anybody's arm. We don't try to coerce anyone. And I think that um, that's very liberating because, you know, God created us with free will, and that's a great gift that he gave us. 
And God respected that free will, even allowing Adam and Eve to fall. And so if God respected our free will, our first parents' free will and our free will now, well, then we have to follow his lead and we have to respect everybody's free will. Of course, we try to offer them good choices and what we think is best uh, for them and for their unborn babies. But fundamentally, that decision is theirs. And if they make that decision not to reverse, well, then we have to tell them that that's, that's their choice and we don't try to make them feel bad or judge them. Because mm-hmm. I, I suspect those who call in, they really don't need to hear that judgment and they're scared of it because they're already doing it themselves and they're just more interested in someone coming alongside them and walking through this time with them. That's absolutely true. And you know, I have a firm belief that in any of these situations, even if a mother chooses not to reverse, or even let's say in front of an abortion center, a woman decides to go in and have the surgical abortion, the fact that you interacted with her and you interacted with her in love and compassion always plants a seed. And maybe you won't see the fruits of that seed right away in this case, but down the line in that person's life, that seed will will bear fruit and will flourish. And that person will remember you and remember your words of kindness and of compassion and of truth. And it, it will make a difference downstream. I firmly believe that. Okay, we're getting near to the end. So let's just act like the person listening on the end could be the mother of that child or even the father of that child. And they've taken that pill and now they're scared and they, they want to think there's something they can do. What's your word to them? If you could sit down and talk to them personally, what would you say? I would say, well, I'm glad that you called. And fortunately, there is something you can do. The medication that's inside of you, we have a way to stop what it does so that if you want to try to block its effects and stop the medical abortion, we can help you do that. And we've had a great uh, number of women go through this, hundreds. And so far what we see is that this is effective and it's very safe, both for the baby and for the mother. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Delgado, I don't think there was enough time to get into another question here, but I do really thank you for coming on and talking about this important topic. I, do you have, I mean, I know you mentioned several times, but let's just mind again. You have a blog, website, and email where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yes, the email would be apreversal at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for the listeners of the Deeper Waters podcast today? Well, I just summarize by saying that abortion pill reversal is safe and effective, and women. Mm-hmm. who have a second chance at choice are very, very grateful. Mm-hmm. So please spread the word, educate yourselves, and educate all those in your sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Delgado, I'd really like to thank you for taking the time from your busy medical career to come and talk to us about this important topic. And I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. You're very welcome and have a blessed day. I'd like mind when next week we have Scott Henderson on talking about death and donation, looking at organ donation this time. How does that relate to pro-life apologetics? Now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.